Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. Being human means making mistakes. Rabbi Shalom explores what to do when we make mistakes that impact those around us. In 1943, in the depths of the Holocaust, a Jewish prisoner was taken from his labor camp to a German army hospital. There, he met an SS man dying from his wounds who confessed his participation in a massacre of Jews. The SS man wept, proclaiming his deep distress and regret, and then he asked the Jewish prisoner for forgiveness. Having sat quietly and listened to this horrible story, the Jewish man left without saying a word. In the following days and weeks, he discussed this experience with his fellow prisoners, and he found that no two of them had the same opinion. Should he have offered compassion to a suffering and a dying man? Should he have condemned the SS man for his unforgivable actions? Or was it best to say nothing, as there was nothing that could be said? Thirty years after the war, this Jewish man, Simon Wiesenthal, wrote his story in a short book called The Sunflower. And at the end of the book, he asked intellectuals, rabbis, priests, fellow survivors of genocide, a deceptively simple question. What would you have done? Their answers are all over the map. Some draw on the Jewish tradition that one must ask forgiveness from the person one has wronged, which makes murder unforgivable. They also note that assuming that one Jew can speak for all Jews and forcing a Jewish captive under threat of death to attend to your need for forgiveness hardly shows repentance. Some Christians emphasize the importance of mercy and compassion, imitating their conception of God and living out the saying of Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. One respondent concluded his rejection of forgiveness very tersely. I would have silently left the deathbed having made quite certain that there was now one Nazi less in the world. Is it useful for us to compare our lives to the Holocaust? Internet discussions are notorious for something called Godwin's Law. As an online discussion grows longer and longer, the probability of a comparison involving Nazis or Hitler approaches one. In other words, the longer the discussion, it's practically certain that someone or something, no matter how ridiculously inappropriate, will be compared to the Holocaust. It is highly unlikely that any of us in our lifetimes will face a challenge to saying, I forgive, as difficult as Wiesenthal's experience. But it is not impossible. Remember the Charleston church shooting? And those bereaved families who said that they forgave the shooter just two days after the shooting? It is impossible to know what we might do in similar circumstances unless we ourselves have lived for months under starvation, abuse, the fear of death, and the loss of family and friends and even your name. And yet, in the book, Wiesenthal asks for your response. What would you have done? At Kol Hadash, our 7th and 8th grade Sunday school class reads The Sunflower in their study of the Holocaust, and I have taught the book to university undergraduates. Precisely because the scenario is extreme, the story highlights some of the challenges to forgiveness, but also some of the possibilities. Is forgiveness collective or individual? Is forgiveness for the relief of the violator's guilt, 
or is forgiveness for the release of the victim's anger? Is a deathbed, even the deathbed of a murderer, a place for compassion or for honesty? Even if we never face such a challenge, it is clear that I forgive, while it seems like a simple thing to say, has more to it than meets the eye. In rabbinic Judaism, Yom Kippur was a day of judgment when divine decree would declare who would live and who would die in the year just begun. Before one is able to seek divine forgiveness, decreed the rabbis, one must first seek forgiveness from the person you have wronged. That also means making yourself available to those who have wronged you, to give them the opportunity to apologize, as well as forcing yourself to do the same if they sincerely atone. In its ideal form, this Yom Kippur is in no way a get-out-of-jail-free, cheap grace, cut-out-the-middle-man, end-run for divine forgiveness. It demands hard work towards reconciliation. This is a great example of Jewish obligations ben adam lechavero, between people, reinforcing our humanism. Atonement ben adam lamakom, between humanity and God, on the other hand, may not. If we choose to fast, or to avoid shaving, or to not wear leather, or even to prostrate ourselves flat on the ground, it is for personal growth rather than to soften up the cosmic judge. Does this mean that everyone has always followed this norm of personal atonement before asking personal forgiveness? Of course not. Lip service, rote recitation are much easier than what I've described. At the same time, we need some practical guidance more so than simply forgive and be forgiven. In the Mishnah Torah, Maimonides' medieval code of Jewish law, a lengthy chapter is devoted to the laws of teshuva, or repentance. Teshuva comes from the Hebrew root shuv, which means return, returning to the scene of the crime, turning away from a mistake, restoring a relationship that had been damaged. Most of the laws in this chapter concern transgressions against God, and Maimonides also describes in detail the sinners who have no share in the world to come, those who dispute prophecy and the divinity of the Torah, those who deny the resurrection of the dead, those who challenge the authority of rabbinic interpretation, and so on. In fact, this list of sinners could be the basis for an early statement of principles for humanistic Judaism, as it works out. When Maimonides turns to human relations, we find more useful insight. For example, he writes, a complete repentance is when a person who confronts the same situation in which he transgressed, when he has the potential to commit that again, and nevertheless abstains and does not commit it because of his repentance alone and not because of fear or a lack of strength. This kind of repentance, this teshuva, would be a positive outcome of therapy. It would be a successful result of rehab. And of course, it would be a good sign that someone was worthy of being forgiven. Still, there is not enough for Maimonides alone to give us the practical guidance we want to when it's appropriate to offer the gift of I forgive, either for their sake or for our own. Let us imagine an ideal scenario when we would be most comfortable saying I forgive if everything were perfect. First, be direct. The other person comes to us promptly after something has gone wrong, and they communicate directly and not through someone else. Second, own it. They take full responsibility, and they show regret for what they have done without blaming anyone else or extenuating circumstances. 
Third, make good. They offer to make restitution for any damages they have caused. And fourth, show growth. They demonstrate they have learned their lesson and will strive to avoid any repetition of such behavior. If someone did all of that, in most cases, it would be straightforward to offer, I forgive. We might even feel obligated to forgive if everything were that perfect. The Assyrians of Nineveh and the, Joseph, and the Jonah story meet these criteria for their offenses against the Hebrew God, and they are forgiven, no matter what Jonah wants. We know that forgiveness is not the same thing as forgetting. And I am sure that each of us has said, I forgive to someone when we remember damn well what they did. Responding to that powerful episode of forgiveness in Charleston, one expert in forgiveness and reconciliation said, people think it's forgive and forget, and it's the opposite. It's forgive and remember. It's a letting go that this person is not going to control my life forever. Forgiveness is a process. It's something you commit to, but it doesn't happen immediately. These four stages I've described parallel Maimonides' recommendations to merit forgiveness. You have to be direct and own it and make good and show growth. As Maimonides writes, even if a person restores the money that he owes, he still must appease the person he has wronged and ask him to forgive him. Maimonides also emphasizes how important it is to seek forgiveness. If his colleague does not desire to forgive him, he should bring a group of three of his friends and approach him with them and request forgiveness. If the wrong party is not appeased, he should repeat the process a second and a third time. If he still does not want to forgive him, he may let him alone and need not pursue him. On the contrary, the person who refuses to grant forgiveness is now the one considered as the sinner. Returning over and over, admitting one's failing in public before other people, all demonstrate what teshuva, what repentance is all about, and paralleled when it should be easier for us to say, I forgive. But what if one or more of those conditions is not met? Be direct. What if the other person delays and hems and haws in coming to us or sends someone else to apologize on their behalf? What if they want you to forgive them for something they did to someone else? Own it. What if they blame others rather than taking responsibility? What if they are more indignant than apologetic? Make good. What if they refuse to help clean up the mess that they made? And show growth? What if they show no signs of change? Indeed, what if they demand forgiveness as an obligation you have to them? In this worst case scenario, with everything going wrong, very few of us would say, I forgive. We would be more likely to say, get lost, or something stronger. Now, we might still decide for our own sanity to let it go. But moving on is not the same as forgiveness. After all these detailed descriptions of true repentance, Maimonides encourages us to cut the offender some slack. He writes, it is forbidden for a person to be cruel and refuse to be appeased. Rather, he should be easily pacified, but hard to anger. When the person who wronged him asks for forgiveness, he should forgive him with a complete heart and a willing spirit. Even if he aggravated and wronged him severely, he should not seek revenge or bear a grudge. Perhaps easier said than done. We are not all by nature easy to pacify and hard to anger. 
Some of us are easy to anger and hard to pacify, and most of us are somewhere in between. When I was a teaching assistant for undergraduates studying the Holocaust, we would invite two survivors to come and speak to the class. One of them was still very, very angry, while the other had made his peace with the Germans of today. As a parallel example, some years ago, Kohadash walked in the Highland Park July 4th parade. We gave out pencils with our name on it. We had a float, which was a car with a banner on the side, a convertible car. And one year we walked in this parade, and I got a nasty email a couple days later. How dare a Jewish congregation use a German car for their parade? <laughs> so I controlled my instant response. I waited and I thought, and then I wrote back to this person. I said, thank you for letting us know how you feel. I have a feeling that different Jews come to different conclusions on that particular issue. Visit any synagogue parking lot, and you will see plenty of German cars in that parking lot. If you go ride in a taxi in Israel, you'll ride in German cars, which were part of reparations arrangements between Israel and Germany. The reality is that moving on is different for different people, but it doesn't mean the people that happen to buy German cars have forgotten or even have forgiven what happened a generation ago. We may decide if and when it would be better for us to forgive or even just to move on, but we should resist making that decision for someone else. How does Wiesenthal's dying SS man fit these forgiveness criteria? Be direct. He talks directly to Wiesenthal, a Jew like those he killed, and not to a priest or to a fellow soldier, but at the end of his life when he fears hell more than he fears his own conscience. Own it. He clearly shows deep regret and accepts his guilt, though some respondents wonder if he ever would have done so had he not been mortally wounded. They also condemn how he blames the system for his own choices to join the Hitler Youth and to volunteer for the SS against the wishes of his parents. Likewise, his late confession means he has no opportunity to make good, although he does try to will his few possessions to Wiesenthal, who refuses them. The open question is whether he shows growth. What would he have done if he had survived? Would he have dedicated his life to reconciliation, or would he have hidden his crimes to resume a normal middle-class German life? That we can never know. All in all, if I were to answer Wiesenthal's question, what would you have done, this case is far enough from that ideal to merit dismissal rather than forgiveness. Abraham Joshua Heschel's response to Wiesenthal's account and his question presents another example to consider, where every criteria is met, but there is still something wrong. Oop, wrong page. Over 50 years ago, the rabbi of Brisk, a scholar of extraordinary renown, revered also for his gentleness of character, entered a train in Warsaw to return to his hometown. The rabbi, a man of slight stature and no distinction of appearance, found a seat in a compartment. There he was surrounded by traveling salesmen who, as soon as the train began to move, started to play cards. As the game progressed, the excitement increased. The rabbi remained aloof and absorbed in meditation. Such aloofness was annoying to the rest of the people, and one of them suggested to the rabbi to join in the game. The rabbi answered that he never played cards. 
As time passed, the rabbi's aloofness became even more annoying, and one of those present said to him, either join us or leave the compartment. Shortly thereafter, he took the rabbi by his collar and pushed him out of the compartment. For several hours, the rabbi had to stand on his feet until he reached his destination, the city of Brisk. Brisk was also the destination of the salesman. The rabbi left the train where he was immediately surrounded by admirers welcoming him and shaking his hands. Who is this man? asked the salesman. You don't know him, the famous rabbi of Brisk? The salesman's heart sank. He had not realized who he had offended. He quickly went over to the rabbi to ask forgiveness. The rabbi declined to forgive him. In his hotel room, the salesman could find no peace. He went to the rabbi's house and was admitted to the rabbi's study. Rabbi, he said, I am not a rich man. I have, however, savings of 300 rubles. I will give them to you for charity if you will forgive me. The rabbi's answer was brief, no. The salesman's anxiety was unbearable. He went to the synagogue to seek solace when he shared his anxiety with some people in the synagogue. They were deeply surprised. How could their rabbi, so gentle a person, be so unforgiving? Their advice was for him to speak to the rabbi's eldest son and tell him of the surprising attitude taken by his father. When the rabbi's son heard the story, he could not understand his father's obstinacy. Seeing the anxiety of the man, he promised to discuss the matter with his father. It is not proper, according to Jewish law, for a son to criticize his father directly. So the son entered his father's study and began a general discussion of Jewish law and turned to the laws of forgiveness. When the principle was mentioned that a person who asks for forgiveness three times should be granted forgiveness, the son mentioned the name of the man who was in great anxiety. Thereupon the rabbi of Brisk answered, I cannot forgive him. He did not know who I was. He offended a common man. Let the salesman go to him and ask for forgiveness. Remember Maimonides? Come back several times and be willing to grant forgiveness. The salesman was doing everything right except for the big picture. It was not his offense against the rabbi's prestige that was the failure, but his lack of basic decency to any ordinary person. What makes the sunflower narrative even more poignant is what Simon Wiesenthal did with his life after the Holocaust. Within a few weeks of liberation, he began the work of the rest of his life, bringing fugitive Nazis to justice for what they had done. As he puts it in the sunflower, years of suffering had inflicted deep wounds on my faith that justice existed in the world. I thought the work might help me regain my faith in humanity and in the things which mankind needs in life besides the material. Wiesenthal grappled with forgiveness, yet he also insisted on bringing justice to the world. For justice, honesty, loyalty to the truth are basic to human existence, especially if we believe that human beings alone have the knowledge and ability to bring them about. I humbly offer this model for when to say I forgive and how to seek forgiveness. Be direct, own it, make good, show growth. There are no guarantees, of course, like all of the simplest things to say. But if it works to bring a bit more shalom, a bit more peace into the world, then why not? All of these simple things to say, from I hear you leading to I'll help, or it's my responsibility, opening up the possibility of I forgive. 
What they have in common is their potential to build bridges across the gulfs that divide us. Misunderstanding, distrust, anger, isolation. The give and take of dialogue becomes the give and take of companionship and community. Even Simon Wiesenthal, in his solitary encounter with the representative of everything he had every right to hate with every fiber of his being, even then, he sat and he listened, he showed compassion, he grappled with the humanity of the other person. And afterwards, he needed to share his story with his fellow prisoners and ultimately the world to ask, what would you have done? One of his comrades offered this interpretation. A superman has asked a subhuman to do something which is superhuman. If you had forgiven him, you would never have forgiven yourself all of your life. If forgiveness would be superhuman, then it cannot be expected or demanded. But if forgiveness can be the bridge to a shared humanity, and teshuvah and repentance opens the possibility of a return to community, then we should be willing to take that first step from either direction, as I encourage you to do as we begin our new year together. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the Kol Hadash podcast. For more information about humanistic Judaism, Kol Hadash Congregation, and Rabbi Shalom, visit our website, kolhadash.com. I'm Ken Burke, and thanks for listening.